thought an appropriate analogy might be flying a plane, since we're the only capital that does not have an airport, and no one can go out and check up on this, do you see? Um, I realize that there's a lot of flying in Santa Fe, but... Uh, <laughs> going through life, there seem to be two paths, and there are, in fact, two paths. One very much remains the same. It's the same old, same old. And it's very much like sort of taxing down a runway. So we never do get airborne. And this is often the feeling on a spiritual path. We seem to have worked hard and things are improving as rapidly as we think that they ought to be. Now this is a temporary stage, but I would suspect that there are probably several of you that are still in that stage of doing your best and wondering what's the point of all this and and this stuff that's called truth seems to be uh, very un unlike truth as we've thought of it. And so you may be tempted to sort of dive back into your ego, which discouragement is. It's just turning back to the ego for comfort and understanding. Of course, it's not there, and you wouldn't have uh, stuck your big toe into God's big celestial lake uh, if you didn't know that to some degree. You began to see that, that the ego is bankrupt. Now, what is it that keeps us from having this lightness, this lightness of heart, this happiness, and this increased sense of peace, and this growing certainty about how all of this is going to turn out? Because it certainly looks as if it's just going to remain like it is most of the time and get worse. Because we're going to get older and we're going to lose our talents and we're not going to be as attractive and so forth. And even if we were lucky, if we were one of those lucky people that we were beautiful for a short period of time, even that becomes sort of a pain. Because we look back at it with longing. Maybe we make desperate attempts to somehow renew it, this, this brief flowering that we had. Possibly the two things that keep us taxing down this infinitely long runway. The two things that keep us sort of in the rut. The two primary things are problems and gifts. So there has got to be an enticement for us to to keep on down this very desperate road. And one of the enticements is a never-ending series of problems. Things that we feel that if they were solved, everything would be all right. They come one at a time, and they're mixed with gifts. Things if we had them. 
uh, here's this good deal on uh, uh, Maria Martinez uh, pot. I can get you a good deal on this Marina Martinez. Well, you don't, you didn't want a pot, but it's a good deal. <coughs> now, what are you going to do? Are you going to dip into the old funds, you know? The kid needs to have his teeth straightened. Uh, well, it's a good deal. You shouldn't pass this up, you see. So now suddenly there's this future orientation. There's this sense of tension. Or maybe there's a, there's a problem. Gift and a problem. A problem and a gift. Maybe uh, there's a bad smell in the refrigerator. Let's see. Now, what are you going to do about that? You haven't done anything about it now for <laughs> three weeks. You've asked yourself, what might it be? <clears throat> You've opened the refrigerator and looked, wondered if it might be that thing back there. <laughs> but you haven't taken the things out of the refrigerator, opened these dishes that have been sealed, you know, forever. <laughs> And smelled, you see. But ego says, ah, this is ruining your life. You can't walk into the kitchen anymore in peace because of the bad smell. You see, so now once again, there's this future orientation. If this were solved, everything would be all right. Now, as long as we fall for either one of those stimuluses, stimuli, reporters here, <laughs> then we can't be happy now we can't be relaxed now we can't feel the peace of God now because there's something that requires the future and there's some process that must be initiated and carried through before there will be this lifting of our spirits so let's discuss some of the typical ego gifts. We've got some wonderful phrases that sum up the major ones. Fame and fortune. Be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Those appeal more to people on a spiritual path. Somehow being healthy is uh, better than, than having uh, fame and fortune. Uh, wealthy is okay on a spiritual path. And of course, if you're on a spiritual path, you're automatically wise. You see. And then the Duchess of Windsor, of course, said you could never be uh, too beautiful or too rich. Oh, excuse me. Too rich or too thin. Too rich or too thin. All right. Yes, it's, I know it's, I've seen about six different attributions to that quote. <laughs> Uh, the first one I saw was the Duchess of Windsor and seemed to have a, a nice ring to it, so I thought that's what I <laughs> And then I, I loved Newsweek's comment when Howard Hughes dies, died. It said, well, this proves you can be too rich and too thin. <laughs> I didn't say that. Newsweek said that. So those are, the, those are old idols. We probably all have those to some degree. To uh, worship the opposite of those is to have the same idol. To worship poverty. To, uh, 
to enjoy being endlessly sick, to having one major illness after the other. It's just the other side of the coin. It's the same idol. But the thing, and so those are old idols, and for most of you, they're fairly weak now. They still come up every once in a while, but most of you wouldn't be here if you really uh, were seeking fame and fortune above all other things. And so there are other things that, that come in, things like uh, uh, winning. There are little ways that we can win. Whenever you hear the phrase, how about a little friendly game of, you see, now you know you're going to get into one of these little competitions. Go or backgammon or something like that. Uh, now, of course, they, we have the, uh, the Atari games uh, and the other video games uh, uh, like Pac-Man. I think that was probably, probably came from Pac-Rat because the Pac-Man eats all of the, these other little cute little round things with little names. I don't know if you've seen the video games, but you have to eat them all up, you see. Uh, or shoot them down or destroy them or crush them or something like that. And then we, of course, have our our sports. Now, as I've said so many times, the problem about mentioning these kinds of specific things is that people think, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, or, or he's saying this is wrong. No, I'm just pointing out how the ego can operate to put your happiness one hop ahead of you, to keep you going down this endlessly dull and desperate road. So, for example, uh, I had come so far along on the spiritual path that I decided not to go down to Albuquerque to see the Holmes Cooney fight. I would just watch it. I would just listen to it on the radio. You see, <laughs> this was great advancement. So let's see what happens now. Here you are. You're you're listening to the the fight. But first of all, they had to summarize it because everybody had the rights. They had to summarize it after the round was over, which means that you had to listen to certain music, you know, because you didn't know when they would break in. Now, as I sat there in the tub, I know this is a wonderful sight for you to conjure up. <laughs> <laughs> the radio there. Uh, I was dependent on the words that were coming over the radio for my happiness because I had definitely gotten caught up in this thing. I'd read the articles and so forth and I'd followed both fighters for some time. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But what the mistake I made was I was not looking at this thing with gentleness. I had, I had formed uh, a fairly deep emotional attachment to the outcome uh, because I thought, uh, you know, because of all the rocky stuff and the songs and all this business. And so my particular fighter didn't win. Um, but the ego says, well, if your fighter had, a, had one, then you would be happy. But that's not true. If we look back, if we see we form these attachments, these very strong attachments to the outcome of anything, who's going to uh, win the war over the Falklands, you see? Uh, which side will bomb the other ones, uh, you know, last, uh, 
who will get the last bombs in uh, in the Middle East, whatever it may be. If we begin to form these attachments, then there is all that we can feel at the moment is this this sort of ground of anxiety. It's a tension. Now, unquestionably, that, that passes for ego pleasure, but if you look carefully at it, there's no deep enjoyment or relaxation, and it's very difficult to be kind to the people around you if you've gotten caught up in one of these things. Because people can disturb you. A telephone call can come right at the wrong time, or your child may want you to play at this particular time, and now you have no, you can't do that because you, 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 your whole happiness is now dependent on this future orientation. And in this case, it was dependent upon the words that were coming through on the radio. I had to my happiness was not dependent on my own decision. So I had put something above the peace of God. I was allowing the world to control me, to control my peace. And that's what we do whenever we run after either one of these ego gifts or one of these ego problems. Um, another one is... Uh, Owning impressive things. I'm talking about gifts now. Little gifts of the ego. Um, a house with a view. But of course all these things are. Uh, they're very arbitrary. The ego says that they're absolutes. But uh, how many people in another part of the country. Know, know what a pot by Maria means. You see. They have no meaning. And uh, I remember the, uh, the time that we took John uh, to see the ocean. He was uh, two, and uh, growing up in New Mexico, he hadn't had a great opportunity to do that. So some people had lent us their house in La Jolla on the, uh, on the beach. We arrived there and packed and everything. We said, okay, John, let's go down and see the ocean. So we walked down to the ocean, and he stood there, and we said, what do you think? We asked him what, we asked him what he thought, and he said, it's too noisy. He turned around and walked off. So these are <laughs> these are all very sort of arbitrary things, you know, that that have grown up through the through the years that we've formed these attachments and that we don't we don't question them. Um, for example, uh, you go through your day and possibly you. Uh, Start looking at your dishes. Whenever you start looking at anything very closely in this world, you're going to want to change it. So you look at your dishes and you say, now, you know, I deserve a better set of dishes than that. You and, but you won't put it that way. You'll put, the people who come to my house deserve to see beautiful things. You say, I'm doing this for them. So you'll go out and you'll get your new dishes. And you'll put them on the table, and they make the placemats look crummy. <laughs> oh, you got to get the new placemats, you see. Oh, you get the nice placemats and put them down. The dining room table looks awful, you see. So you replace the dining room table. You get a really nice one with little wicker and polished wood, you see. Made of real wood. You got the real wood table. See, none of that unspiritual pressed wood stuff, you see. But what happened? The furniture in the rest of the room has got to go, you see. 
So pretty soon you've redone the whole house, you see. Uh, you're very deep in debt at this point. But you look out the window from this beautiful setting and you realize that your yard is an absolute mess. You've got to do something about the yard. I just noticed this, how this works. There's a little something. So the ego says, you really need to make this little change. This is very important. You get caught up in it and you say, oh, yes, I really do need to do that. But notice it doesn't stop. You're now going down a specific track. Your little train is going down this track. And the track is one problem after the other. But it's always it's just this problem. It's very much like the uh, soap operas uh, during the day. There's always something, you see. And, and so you know that if you listen tomorrow, you're going to be happy. Because you're going to find the answer. But that's not what happened. Because in the meantime, another thing's being introduced, do you see? So you go out in the yard, and um, you're on a spiritual path, of course. Uh, so, well, of course, you, you've got to have trees. I think I shall <coughs> never see a thing so spiritual as a tree. Trees are spiritual, right? Uh, we might throw out a few things here in this. We'll talk about whether or not they're... You tell me whether or not they're spiritual. You're going to look at your lawn, you see. Now, here you've got your flower. Well, let's, let's just first of all take the lawn itself. Uh, manicured lawn. Spiritual or unspiritual? Unspiritual. Uh, <laughs> uh, cactus and wild chamisa. Spiritual, right, that's right. But now, what if you uh, were to take up your lawn, your, what if you were to take up the manicured lawn and you were to put uh, crushed red lava uh, with redwood borders? Spiritual or unspiritual? Unspiritual, right. <laughs> now, of course, there's the... Well, the decision is what flowers are you going to plant? Uh, mums. Unspiritual, right? Daisies. Spiritual, right? Daisies. Sunflowers. Spiritual. Pansies. Now, pansies. <laughs> Pansies can go either way. <laughs> so there's always a little gift. Uh, join this person in attacking so-and-so, and you'll draw closer to them. We often do this when we meet someone and we want to be on their best side. We want to become a friend of this individual. Often we are tempted to try to find something in common to attack as a means of drawing close to this person. And the results, of course, are, are unhappy because you cannot increase the love content of the situation by turning to a form of attack. It's just a mistake. It's not a sin, but it just simply doesn't work. But the ego will always offer you a little something, a little carrot, you see, to, to take one more step rather than releasing your mind from uh, these preoccupations. 
So it's not that, uh, for example, that we can't enjoy sporting events or Atari games or any of these things, but what happens is that you get to the point where you, you enjoy it, and we've all experienced, we've had moments of this, and we're having ever-increasing moments of it. You get to the point where you enjoy it like you might enjoy sitting and watching children play on a playground, swinging and so forth, and you happen to walk by, and you sit down, you just walk. You have no vested in interest into, into which child can swing the highest, although the children might be caught up in that a little bit at the moment. But you just enjoy, enjoy the laughter. Uh, you don't get caught up into which child can push the merry-go-round the fastest, although the children may have gotten caught up a little bit in this. You watch it like uh, light plays upon water. You watch it like you might watch a uh, beautiful movement of clouds. You can enjoy it, enjoy it deeply if you look at anything that way, but if you get caught up in the outcome, you can't enjoy it now. And what the ego doesn't tell you is there will never be a time in which it's not now. So if you're not enjoying it now, you're in a bad situation because this is the only time to enjoy anything is now. So learning to respond to now is all there is to learn. Well, let's, let's look at problems here for a moment. If I get this thing solved, then I'll be happy. Uh, we've seen people, or we've done this, uh, we lose something, something's lost. Have you ever, can you remember one of those scenes in which something's lost? And there could be quite a bit of devastation take place because something's lost. Feelings have to be trampled and everything. Or maybe you're late to an appointment, you see. Uh, you don't have time to be happy. First, you've got to get to the appointment. Now, we talked about, uh, a couple Sundays ago, we talked about how, as we go through life, one of the first ways that we try to approach life is we keep waiting for something to happen. We wait until we're old enough to start school. We wait for the vacations. We wait to get out of school and go to college. And then we wait to get the job. And then we wait to get the promotion. And then we wait to retire. And so, Now, it's very tempting to apply exactly the same state of mind to a spiritual path. There would seem to be degrees. We think there must be degrees to a spiritual path. And so we are waiting for the right meditation. <clears throat> There's, 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 the ego tells us there's some click or something, and we haven't experienced it yet. We read about mystical, mystical experiences, and we say, well, I'm not having those. So it's very tempting to apply this same thing, that we've got to put in a lot of work first before it's going to pay off. Just the opposite. A spiritual path means simply enjoying this instant. Now, that does grow. So you enjoy this instant more and more fully. But it's only as we turn to this instant that it begins to grow. That's the nourishing of it. That puts in the water and nourishes uh, this moment with our love. Um, there was a guy who came to my house. He came from another state to visit me. We sat down in the living room. And uh, he jumped up and told me my refrigerator was too noisy. 
And uh, he just didn't think people ought to own those things because they always made noise like that and so forth. He could not enjoy the conversation. He'd come all the way from another state just to have a conversation with me, and he couldn't do that. To him, the refrigerator noise had to stop before he could be happy, you see. Um, Gail and I visited some people we hadn't seen in a long time um, in Dallas, and I remember we were sitting there talking to them, and suddenly they jumped up, both of these People, fairly elderly, jumped up and they said, there's a fly in the house. And they started running all over trying to get the fly and kill the fly, do you see? They had, now, what happened was that there was this little enticement. Dead fly equals happiness, you see, that's the thing. <coughs> but they couldn't enjoy it. They couldn't enjoy the thing, you see. Now, it's not that we won't get caught up in these things. But it's that we can begin to see the ego's little trick. And once you begin to see it, you will begin to laugh at it. You'll begin to see the ego's just handed you a problem. And you say, oh, no. I can either do something about it or not do something about it. I'm completely free to respond to that stimulus in any way I want to. The ego hands you a little gift. You see, once again, I'm free to either accept it or run after it or not run after it. Whatever I choose to do. But whatever I do, I will do it in peace. Uh, uh, this was a number of years ago, uh, before I turned into the sterling speak, uh, figure that you see before you now, uh, wise and deep, and so forth. <coughs> I, I was bitten by a spider, you see. Now, of course, the spider couldn't even get through the aura as it is now, you know. <laughs> And bit me right on the bridge of my nose, and a little growth started. So I watched it grow. And someone said, uh, you know, you could just go to uh, so-and-so, who is a plastic surgeon here in town, and have it removed. Uh, Well, I didn't know about that. Sissies did that kind of thing, you know. Real men had growths and scars and <laughs> hair in the wrong place and on. But kept growing and so finally I said, Oh well, I'll go under the knife, you know. So I uh, went in and took off the little growth and looked at it. I oh well gosh, that seemed to be an improvement. <laughs> uh, I noticed a couple other growths. Mm, went back in. I said, can you take these growths off too? Yep. Well, that took care of my face. And again, this is actually true. Again, looking at my body. You see? Uh, after, If you had looked in on me in about a month, you would have seen me standing before the mirror filing my teeth. They weren't even. This is actually true. Before I woke up, it was during the filing that I woke up as to that there was going to be no end to this, you know. Uh, So there are these enticements. And what can we do to brush these enticements away or to, to throw a blanket of peace over these enticements, problems and gifts? 
the greatest blanket of peace that I know, the 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 uh, the greatest way to to quieten this madness down that I know of is simplicity. And I'd like to talk about how we can simplify our lives, but I also want to warn you that Edgar, your higher ego, will begin telling you that these are things you ought to do and that you've got to do them before you're going to be happy. In other words, Edgar, of course, uses truth to separate us from truth. But let's just take things, because simplicity itself will tend to generate a certain amount of peace. Simplify your life, and there will be a certain swell, gentle swell of peace that will arise just from the simplicity. But you can be peaceful while simplifying. You don't have to wait to reach some ideal state of simplification because it will be different for each and every person as to what is simple. You follow your sense of simplicity. So let's take uh, food, for example. We've talked in here about how at this particular time, uh, food has become an extremely fearful thing for most people. Uh, there's this constant surveying of everything they eat and this uh, anxious reading of labels and there's all this stuff that goes on so that we can't sit down and enjoy a meal any longer. However, it does no good for us to say to ourselves, since I am pure spirit, pure mind, this is my reality, and the body is just temporary, the body is just here for a moment, and, uh, and you have begun to identify with this other thing within you, beside just the body. It's very tempting to say, well, since I'm not a body, I therefore can eat anything I want to eat. I, I, uh, because I'm not a body, it shouldn't affect me, so I, I won't pay any attention to the fact that it is affecting me. So it's very important to see that if you are eating something or drinking something that you know is affecting you, and by affecting you, I mean it's keeping you from turning to God. It's a preoccupation. It's keeping you on this runway. Then, of course, you must let it go. And it can be let go of simply and easily. So what does it mean to eat simply? Because one of the things that's obvious about people who have come very far, whose egos are very weak, like uh, Mother Teresa and Bhavmukhanan and Gandhi and Dr. Sham and other people like that, is that their lives are extremely simple and they eat very simply. To eat simply <clears throat> simply means that you you eat a few foods moderately. Now that doesn't mean that you have to now go leave this place and start cutting out things from your diet and all that. But it means that if there is a sense of anxiety about how you eat, if there's certain foods you're eating and it scares you every time you eat them, is the peace of God the most important thing to you? 
Is it more important than continuing to eat this thing? Would you be willing to say, if I could have the peace of God, I'd be willing to eat only one food. Of course, you'll never be asked to do that. But would you be willing to do that? How important is the peace of God to you? Then do what you need to do so that you'll feel good. And if you're eating certain things that make you feel bad, don't just say, well, I'm not supposed to, that uh, disease is a decision. Of course, all that's true. But you don't believe it's true at the moment. You're operating under a different set of principles. Even though intellectually you know it's a decision. And intellectually you know you could simply turn to God and move past this thing. The fact is you are not moving past it. And you're not yet ready to move past it. If that's the case, then look at what's disturbing you. Eat simply. Avoid the things that are tearing you up and making, making you unhappy. Uh... Now, there's, once, once again, Edgar will get a hold of this, and there'll be no end to this. If you don't realize that your sole purpose in looking at your diet is the peace of God, then you'll start wondering how fast you should chew. You know, you'll get into this kind of thing. Uh, well, let's take that for a minute, because there's been a lot written on that subject. Uh, many uh, seemingly very spiritual people have talked about that very subject. I think all that's meant there is there's a way to enjoy your meal. You don't if, if it's if it's making you unhappy to rush through your meal. You don't have to rush through it, but that doesn't mean you have to go the other extreme and try to hit hit some ideal way of chewing your food. There was actually a system uh, about uh, thirty years ago as to how many times you were to chew each food. There was actually a book put out and all that. You don't have to get into that. Let's take your house. There is a way for your surroundings to be simple. Perhaps you have noticed that clutter does not make you happy. Now if you haven't noticed that and if you like clutter then just have all the clutter you want. This is very important. If there's any sense of sacrifice to any of these things I'm going to mention, you shouldn't do them. If there's any sense of sacrifice, don't do the thing, because what we are learning is there is no sacrifice to walking toward God. There's an increase in happiness and peace and gentleness and certainty and so forth. So whenever a sense of sacrifice enters in, that is ego. But you can ask yourself, is it indeed a sacrifice for me to stop, uh, for example, uh, drinking coffee right before I go to bed if it's keeping me up? Is that really a sacrifice? And if you see that it's not, then it's not. Even if it takes a little effort to get over that hump, do you see? Now the same thing. You might look at your house and Does it distress you that you've got all these clothes you aren't wearing, that there are all these things around that maybe someone could use? There's a simple solution to that. You see, the ego has us 
keep things because we might use them someday. Yeah. No, it's all well. I you can and you can surely and I can promise you that if you go home and you begin simplifying your surroundings, you will throw out something that you will someday wish you hadn't. That doesn't matter. It's okay. Scheduled fun. <laughs> uh, so we've talked about eating simply, about having your surroundings simple, that a certain amount of peace will, will arise if your surroundings are simple. Just notice what you like. Do you like a clean house? Then it's all right to clean the house. You see? But there's no, there's no right way. There's no perfect level of cleanliness. It'll be different for each person as to how much stuff they have, you know, out and so forth, how often they sweep the floor or whatever. So there's no ideal. There's, no, there's nothing here to attain. It's just you simply look and see if it distresses you. And if it does, you change it. Now, Another thing that seems to cause people a lot of distress is all the scheduled things we get into. And this is especially easy to do with friends. So we begin scheduling times to be with our friends. Scheduling playing certain games at certain times. All perfectly innocent. If it doesn't disturb you, leave it like it is. But if you find that as often people do on a spiritual path, when they begin to just enjoy so much living moment by moment, then one of these scheduled things just is sort of abrupt. It's like, oh, I've got to do so-and-so. And you are enjoying so much just heading out the door and you're going to go for a walk or whatever you want to do, do you see? But, ah, you remember that it's all right to uh, back away from those things. It's all right to uh, unplug the phone. It's all right to buy an answering machine. I know answering machines aren't spiritual. <laughs> now, if you decide to buy an answering machine, and if you don't want people to leave messages, if you really want to, see, just be through with this altogether, I, can, I, I stumbled onto the ideal way to do this. This was a sincere message, but... I didn't realize it had such dramatic results. I had a, a deadline on a book. And I realized I wasn't going to get it finished unless I stopped talking on the phone altogether. So I put a little message on the phone saying that I wasn't going to answer any calls. Couldn't, I just simply couldn't do it this time. But if the person calling would like for me to pray for them, I'd be happy to do that. <coughs> I'll tell you, you will get so many clicks. Well, people hang up. And if someone actually leaves a message. They will start... Now, uh, I don't want you to pray for me. I want you to understand. I don't need you to pray for me, but... No, 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 don't leave the message, you see. Something people, some people are just terrified of being prayed for. Yeah, I don't know. Nothing in your life has to dominate you. Or you are not slave to anything in your life. You are not slave to your job. If you do not feel like going to work one day, it is all right to not go to work one day. That's all right. Nothing. As a matter of fact, if you're the kind of person who has never missed a day of work, 
in the last 18 years, miss one. Just to see that it won't hurt nothing. The world doesn't cave in on you and your people don't love you because of this and you're not respected at the company simply because of this. This isn't what life is all about. So those are little things that simplicity can go a long ways toward quiet. Let me mention a couple of big ones. Two of the biggest ways to be unhappy, two of the biggest ways to uh, just really uh, become preoccupied with the, with the runway, with the daily life, the one thing after the other, with the ever-evolving soap opera, is falling in love and changing your religion. <laughs> now, if you really want to put yourself in misery, this is, this is, this is the way to do it. Uh, of course, it can't be helped lots of times. Uh, you just find it's, you've just done it, you know. Didn't mean to, but there it is. Uh, still, there are some things that you can do if you find that this has happened uh, that will make it easier on you. Let's just look at falling in love. Let's look at how the ego sets it up. Now, one, you know, the day before, we knew all this was true. It's the day after, when we fall in love, suddenly that we don't know longer... Uh, this time it's different. Uh, this person isn't like any other person I've ever fallen in love with, you see. Uh, I can talk about opera with this person. Or this person thinks I'm funny. I've always suspected I was funny. <laughs> this person giggles at everything I say. I've always suspected I was just that funny, you see. Uh, so the ego sets the thing up, first of all, so it appears like it's never going to end. And it brushes it with, with uh, pastel shades of all kinds of spirituality. Uh, doesn't mean you're devoid, doesn't mean it's bad, doesn't mean that anyone is immature if they fall in love or anything like that. It happens to some people, other people it doesn't seem to happen to at all. Uh, I can tell you that one day uh, you'll get a little tired of it. And you won't do that anymore. Uh, you'll just form very deep, satisfying friendships and uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. And there'll be this, this sense of walking home to God with this person. And uh, there'll be no fear. You see, because the way you can tell if you've fallen in love is there's this anxiety. There, like, when, hope it doesn't end. And you'll find yourself protecting it in some way so it won't end. Worrying about uh, this. Because you know deep within you, it is going to end. Usually in about six months. <laughs> but it's, it's less or more, depending. During these periods, the ego can be genuinely intuitive. It's very important to remember. When you fall in love, your ego can hand you uh, precognitions. Uh, you can read the other person's uh, thoughts suddenly. You know what the other person thinks. You finish the sentence, you see. And all of which the ego will tell you this, this proves, uh, you know, that you're not like other people, that you've found this relationship that's different than other relationships, uh, and you've arrived. And here's all, here's all the evidence of it. Uh, now, 
the thing that's distressing about this, because this is always the other side of the coin, and the ego always has the other side of the coin, no matter what this world offers you, please look at the other side of the coin before you take it. The other side of the coin is that people trade in, trade in each other like uh, last year's car. Is this not true? And this is <clears throat> deeply distressing to most people because they don't understand how this couple could have lived together for five years, 12 years, 18 years, shared deep intimacies, been with the, been each other's best friend seemingly, gone to everything, and now they're complete strangers and enemies. They talk against each other. There's obviously no love in their heart for each other. You see them one day, everything's just fine. The next day, nothing. This is very disturbing. Because we believed the ego description of love. There is true love. But 99% of what, go, what passes for love is simply this ego, what the Course in Miracles calls special relationship. It is not to be avoided. You're not to go out and not date people or anything like that uh, because you're afraid this is going to happen. It's just like anything else. It's like any of these other gifts. It is just as much a gift as uh, being uh, uh, beautiful or rich or uh, having eminence or having influence or all, all those things. It's not bad. It's just a little ego gift. It's not any more or less than anything else. It's just that there is a happier way to relate to someone. But if you haven't gotten to the point where you can relate to that other person in that way, don't worry about it. Go ahead and fall in love. Don't try to end it sooner. Don't try to fight it. Don't berate yourself because you find uh, that you're in that situation. But likewise, when you see some couple break up, it is exactly like trading in. You buy a new car and it's just, well, you just love this car so much and you actually take it out and have it washed. You know, every few days, and you clean off the crumbs off of the seed and everything, you know, and it's got a little smudge on the windshield, you know. Just love that car. Now, when you trade it in, uh, two or three years later, whenever, you don't, it's just gone. It just evaporates like that. Here's the new model. It's more special than the old. It literally replaces in your heart the old car. That's why there's no real remorse. There may be a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth and tears and all that when one of these relationships like that break up. But there isn't any real remorse because something else comes in and takes its place. Now, with real love and friendship, this is simply not a possibility. You're completely comfortable around this person because you know that the relationship is not based on the fact that the other person thinks you're more special than other people and that you're and that the specialness is primarily external certain external things that you can say or do or ways that you that you look and when one of these relationships breaks up on that basis because from falling in love a true friendship can grow it doesn't doesn't have to break up but it does, that thing ends, what's called the honeymoon period. It ends, then is when the real relationship is either going to form or it's not going to form. 
Now, if the person is so caught up in the sensations of being in love, they will immediately run out and try to find someone else to fall in love with. And this goes on, can go on for a long, long time. But if they realize, well, that was just, you know, something didn't happen, but I think I would really like to form a real relationship with this person. Because what happened was you woke up one morning and you looked across the breakfast table and there was this total stranger sitting there, you see. And all the illusions had melted away. You're trying to tell yourself they didn't have bad breath in the morning, but now you know that they do, you see. Uh, Now, what the ego will do if the relationship breaks up is it will try to form a little relationship. So always the ego hands you one more gift or one more problem to keep you going endlessly down this runway. And so it will say, no, you can't have the, can't have uh, marriage with this person, or you're not going to have children and so forth, or yes, uh, they've now found someone else, but have a little relationship with them. And you'll find yourself hanging on to the thing. That's one side of the coin. Hanging on to it, somehow trying to have a little bit of what was left. This is extremely unhappy, and it's not necessary. If the thing has ended, and if there is no possibility of a holy relationship being formed, then go ahead and let it end. It's it's all right to do that. Because one of the things that's believed, that's simply not true, is that every relationship between egos can be healed. And there are a lot of people who uh, read The Course in Miracles uh, once or twice or something like that, and they will actually advise, they'll say, well, a couple will come in and they'll say, well, your relationship can be healed. Well, in a sense of absolute truth, it can be healed. You can look beyond the way the egos are relating, and you can see the truth, and that will bring you immense peace. But it does not mean that the egos will stop con- uh, fighting each other. It's very important to understand that there are people that you simply are not going to be able to get along with at this time. It's not that the potential isn't there. It's just that the two people involved aren't quite ready to form a holy relationship. And very often, what will break up a relationship is that the people will put their feet on a spiritual path and the ego will react very violently and the relationship will be destroyed because they weren't quite ready to commit to true love or a holy relationship. So it is not necessary for you to endlessly work at trying to bring about some sort of uh, nice feeling between you and another person under the assumption that if you somehow could pray right or meditate right or apply the truth correctly, you could heal this situation. In terms of time, that is not necessarily true. And if you will look within your heart, you can see whether or not there is a real potential for a holy relationship between you and this other person. Whether it takes the form of a friendship or an employee-employer relationship or a marriage or whatever it is. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to look in your heart and say, I'm not peaceful around this person. And I have never have been peaceful around this person. And it's not... A, a criticism about the person it's just the way our egos are reacting that they conflict I want the peace of God so for the time being I will step away from this relationship 
do it gently. But oftentimes you will hurt people far more deeply if you tell little lies to get out of the relationship. Because they have fantasies too. And if you make up some little excuse, well, I'm real busy right now, or da da da, they'll say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he really is real busy, or, and maybe if I just wait, uh, he, he really loves me, he'll come back. So you don't have to do that to the other person. You don't have to lead them on. There is no way to gently ease someone out of a relationship if you're using forms of deception to do that. Just gently, easily, and quickly step away from it. And if six months, eight months from now, you find that you can enter the relationship in peace, then you can do that. This is not an eternal decision. But for heaven's sakes, eliminate the relationship that is disturbing your peace if you can see that there's simply no way you can heal them at this particular time. This doesn't mean you can't look beyond the relationship and see the truth. That we're all united. That we're all brothers and sisters. But egos aren't united. If you feel that you can form a holy relationship with your lover or your spouse or this close friend, there are two things that would be there can be immensely helpful to you. If the two of you can commit to this, and if you want to put your relationship on a safe and sound basis, you want to begin that process, knowing that the ego is going to react initially. It's very important. The ego will react initially to any attempt to put the relationship on a sound basis. But it's temporary. Persist, and the ego will fade away. There are two things that can be helpful. One is openness. You cannot form a holy relationship if you are holding back things. Now the ego hears that statement and says, I must therefore dump every negative feeling I'm thinking onto this person. I'm talking about holding back real things. So what often happens in a relationship is that you will have a polarity in almost every aspect of the relationship. One person likes to go out all the time. The other person likes to stay home all the time. Uh, one person likes to spend a lot of money. The other person likes to save a lot of money. Uh, one person thinks that uh, you should be very firm with the child. The other one thinks that you should be very permissive with the child. And on and on. There's this polarity. Behind the polarity are genuine strengths, and that's why you came together. But on an ego level, there's the polarity. Now, if you will get the polarity out in the open, you can laugh at your egos. That you always take this position, no, we shouldn't spend the money. And the other person always takes the position, yes, we should spend the money. Now, if you'll get that out in the open, without an attack, there's no attack there. There's no, it's just, you just see, well, my ego position is, and your ego position is, and you sort of get this out with the, with the uh, goal of finding a way to move past this. It's very much like we, we raise a child, and that is that we set the child back on the happy path. We don't punish the child for, because it was wrong. 
children aren't wrong. No one's wrong. The child, though, as you look at a little child, usually they're on the happy path much more than we are. They're on a happy little path. But every once in a while, they get off on a path that's not happy. Like, for example, maybe they're around another kid that has temper tantrums, and they suddenly take a temper tantrums, or it's going to get them something. You see them veer off. You simply pick them up, and you put them back on the happy path. That's what correction is. But if you punish them, you're not putting them back on the happy path. You're teaching them punishment and revenge. The same thing's true of working out a holy relationship. The purpose is not to point out the other ind individual's faults. It's just to see the relative ego positions. And together, you're going to move past it. And it's so simple if it's done that way. It's amazingly simple. If two people will just sit down and calmly uh, say what they feel and so forth, and with the objective of moving past it. No one's wrong. This is no-fault marriage. <laughs> And the other thing is, there is a correct way to use pressure. Now, usually we're pressuring someone because they didn't do what they were supposed to. They didn't, uh, they didn't make the bed, they didn't clean up, or they didn't put their laundry in the laundry hamper, or they, whatever the thing is. Uh, and this is pressure. So we, we, that kind of pressure is designed to make the other person feel guilty, to get them to behave. Now, that's the kind of pressure we usually use on our partner, with whom we are trying to form a holy relationship. Of course, this is not helpful. There's another kind of pressure, though. You can pressure the other person to be peaceful and to be happy. You can actually monitor their mood, and when you see that something's not making them happy, you know them so well that you probably can step in there and correct the situation. Not necessarily by saying anything, although you might say something, but more often it may be simply because you put your arm around them or you do something like that, but you see that this, your brother, your sister, has wandered off a little bit and you just put your loving arm around them and you guide them back. So there is an actual spiritual pressure that can be applied, which means I want you to be happy because when you're happy, I'm happy. And when we're both happy, our love grows. Our relationship expands. Let's, let's just, uh, not physically, let's hold each other's hand. The path is getting easier. Things are getting brighter. You know now that you can have a few hours of a peaceful day. You know now that a life that is genuinely happy is a possibility. Help your brothers and sisters to see that. Don't make them feel guilty. Don't criticize them. Just lift them out of the rut that they may have temporarily gotten in. This can be such a beautiful world if we'll walk gently upon it. Let's go out today and do that. Let's let our hearts sing. Let's look with kindness upon every living thing. And let's do whatever we need to do to bring our life to peace. Thank you for coming. Amen.